to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good morning. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and host of the What to Know podcast. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with one of my colleagues, Seth Duncan, who is our chief analytics officer. Welcome, Seth. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, I'm glad to have you, and you and I obviously spend quite a bit of time together because we're normally out in the San Francisco office, but unfortunately, we had to do this at a distance today. Uh, you're in Boston, and I'm in San Francisco, um, so unfortunately, that you know, it would be nice to, to be together. Uh, I do want to jump right in, and uh, one of the things, as you know, I like to talk about guests' background. Um, you have a very interesting background, and not completely unorthodox for where you went, but you received your uh, BA in psychology from Reed College, and then, at least according to LinkedIn, uh, you went on to become a data analyst at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, followed by becoming a statistician at UCSF. Uh, what, when did you know that this was sort of a passion area for you, and, and what sent you down this path? Was it someone in your life that you sort of were modeling after, or you just knew that you were kind of a stats uh, numbers geek? Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, well, I wish I could say it was completely purposeful and there was a, there was a plan, but um, you know, for for better or for worse, it was completely opportunistic. I um, you know, I, I grew up in a pretty small town in uh, Oregon, and although my my parents were from you know bigger cities, I kind of grew up in a fishing and logging community. And and honestly, I just didn't know. I I really I grew up in a small world. I didn't really know what was out there. I think even through college. You know, I kind of I kind of struggled to imagine what a career could look like if I wasn't, uh, you know, where I grew up, you were a fisherman, a logger. And if you wanted to make some money, you were, you know, maybe a, an orthodontist, a doctor or maybe an attorney, you know. So I, I, like I said, I just I didn't really didn't grow up knowing much about what career opportunities looked like. So when I was in uh, when I was an undergraduate, um, I really I knew that I had some degree of acumen for research, for experimental design. I, I actually wasn't a very good mathematician at all. I probably struggled with math more than the average person at Reed, but um, the, um, but, you know, I, I kind of, I, I was interested in the sciences. I was really interested in, in you know, sort of um, research. And so I thought I might want to go into uh, medicine, like in an MD, but maybe like an MD, PhD. And uh, my, my thesis advisor um, set me up with a really amazing gig um, at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, working with um, a set of researchers that were doing a bunch of clinical trials um, in depression and anxiety. And uh, I actually started off as a research assistant uh, where I was interviewed. I was actually doing these structured clinical interviews to diagnose people to having things like PTSD and depression. And I was 21 years old at the time. I just moved across the country, you know, wasn't that happy myself. And I just found like doing those interviews was so taxing, so draining. I just couldn't imagine doing it anymore. So um, the statistician in the, the clinic that I was in left and I was like, hey, I know statistics, which was kind of half true. I kind of maybe bullshitted my way into that gig a little bit, but I was 21. What did I know? Um, so, so I managed just to kind of get this takeover for the statistician, and um, I was I was mentored by a, a biostatistician that was there and some other people that actually really knew what they were doing, and uh, I learned a lot. And it, it was just completely opportunistic. It's just that I didn't want to do this other thing in this lab or this clinic, and. Uh, uh, you know, I moved out to San Francisco shortly after that um, with uh, with my girlfriend now wife, and um, you know, I, I kind of knew that you could you know you could you could make 
it was a it was a it was a gig, right? So I I uh, you know I got a job as a statistician part time, uh, you know, while I was out there. I was also going to grad school um, in San Francisco too for a master's degree, and so I kind of just paid the bills um, as a statistician at UCSF. But you know, I think um, I, I was always uh, it, it was completely opportunistic. I, I actually, to be honest, never had a deep passion for statistics. It always seemed kind of like a something that was a necessary component of doing really solid research. And I was always interested in, I think, kind of seeing the world in a new way or kind of thinking about the world in a new way or discovering new things about the world and, you know, certainly about the way that the human brain worked. Uh, you know, that, that was always interesting to me. The statistics was just kind of a, a means to an end. You know, having, having spent, you know, certainly three years in uh, SAS and SPSS, um, you know, I, I think at this point it, it, it helps me know what to ask real statisticians for, if that, if that makes sense. No, it does. I, and I think um, that that's a helpful background. I've always seen psychology as one of those things where if, if, if you do know how the brain works, and particularly if you do end up going into marketing or advertising or communications, understanding how people think and how to sort of, you know, get the most out of that can, can make a lot of sense. And certainly understanding research design is critical. I've, you know, I'm more marketing background and I've learned uh, the research and analytics part just from being around smart people like you and Andy Booth and Chuck and others. Um, but speaking of, I do want to fast forward to today because, you know, the interesting thing is you and I joined about the same time. I think you joined in July of 2011. I had joined in March of that same year. Uh, we've seen a lot of changes. I mean, we've grown for, from, I want to say we were probably 15 maybe um, analytics folks at that point in time to over 100 mm -hmm. now. Uh, talk a little bit about what that journey has been and how our analytics marketing science team has grown up over the last seven years. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, when, when I first started, most of our analytics were really focused on social media. And I, I don't mean using social media as that. I mean, the analytics really were designed to optimize social media content and identify influencers. And, you know, over the past, uh, you know, seven years, um, I would say we really evolved to not just uh, obviously informing what influencers you should work with, but uh, you know, I think we go pretty deep into marketing strat strategy as a whole. Um, the, you know, I think another thing that we, um, yeah, there's been there's been a lot of change, obviously. But at the time when I joined, you guys, there was a lot of hybrids. So these were people that were kind of account people or social media community managers that also dabbled in data. I think what we were seeing is that, you know, those people were excellent at engagement, but maybe weren't the most, um, you know, they didn't have the, mo the the deepest, I guess, sort of research experience necessarily, and they. There was a few clients we were working with on the market research side at the time where I think a lot of the hybrids struggled going head to head with somebody that had, you know, decades of quantitative and market research experience. So we actually kind of went into another direction where we were hiring more people that had that kind of quantitative experience and so on. And I think over time we found a really good balance where, uh, you know, I, I think especially um, bringing in, you know, Kevin uh, Johnson and, and market teching a couple of years ago. Um, so for those of you not in the know, market teching is a, was, was a, a social analytics firm really specializing in life sciences that we acquired two years ago. And uh, Kevin Johnson, the president of market teching, he, um, with him came about 20, uh, you know, analysts that are really deep in healthcare, um, you know, people that, that, that really know the space well and, and know life sciences especially well. So anyway, you know, I think we've, Kind of, I think at this point, I've found a really great balance of people that have deep market research experience, have really strong quantitative experience, but also really understand healthcare, so that you know we can kind of bring in the right skill sets that's needed to you know deliver on strategy and you know 
deliver on a really, really right, wide range of uh, uh, sort of research asks and, and um, I don't know if data-driven approaches to communications and marketing. Well, that makes sense. And you touched on what I wanted to drill into a little bit on my next question, which is we did acquire uh, Kevin Johnson and his firm, Marketeching. Uh, they've been a nice tuck-in to you know, what was already a strong team. And I totally agree that they have given us much deeper healthcare chops and I think deep, deeper chops on the qualitative side. But you know, talk a little bit about what that uh, evolution has looked like. And um, I know, for instance, like M Digital Life, maybe we could talk a little bit about that and how that's really become more, you know, more robust and more than just sort of a, a database of, um, you know, doctors that are on social media, which I think is sometimes how people in the past have looked at it. It's really a, a, a rich set of databases and processes and, and connective points. So I guess two questions mm-hmm. there, but uh, what does market taking look like, you know, and, and how much have they added and then the, the MDL piece? Us at W2O, we, we first came across Kevin probably about five years ago um, where we were doing some social research for a client and he was also doing some social analytics for a client and we kind of ran into each other and I think those of us that, that, that had uh, sort of been, um, seen the work that Mark Teching was doing was really impressed with the types of qualitative insights they were getting and um, it was very clear that uh, you know Kevin had built a team of people that really under, understood you know the, the disease areas, the therapeutic areas that he was working in. Um, I, I know personally, um, being in, you know, having worked in San Francisco most of my life, I always really struggled finding analysts that wanted to work in healthcare. Everybody in San Francisco wanted to, I mean, for the past decade, whether, whether it was Google or then Facebook, then Airbnb or Lyft, there's always some hot new tech company that all the analysts wanted to go to and work at. They didn't want to work in healthcare because that, that's just not what they grew up knowing. There, you know, aside from Genentech, you know, a few other smaller biotech companies, healthcare. There's not a huge healthcare presence there. So, um, you know, when Kevin basically built a team of, of people that kind of grew up in, in what I call the healthcare uh, heartland. I mean, that kind of corridor between Philadelphia up to New York, you know, through Pennsylvania and New Jersey, where it's like every major pharmaceutical company in, in the world has a presence. And, you know, he, he just basically were like, you know, I think we kind of got to a point where like, if we're going to build a real serious healthcare analytics group, one that looks like what we want it to look like, where we're using, you know, um, we're, we're not just sort of analyzing data, we're actually really arriving at insights and, and, and delivering strategy for our clients, we, we got to go to where the talent is. And, and, you know, I think Kevin did a great job of building, building that, that pool of talent. And it's worked great. I mean, you can see, I mean, you know, if you look at um, the deliverables from several years ago compared to today, I, I would say W2O, we always had really good quantitative work, right? Like we always, I think, had really good quantitative empirical support for a lot of the recommendations we were making. But there's just a, there's a far greater richness, I think, in the insights uh, in healthcare today than there were a few years ago. So it's been, it's been a huge boon for us. I agree. So um, to the, the M Digital Life part, maybe... Uh, take a step back and I've given a yeah. high level of what that is, but talk a little bit about yeah. sort of what that is and what its purpose is and how I think to some degree bringing Kevin's team and, and their expertise in has helped sure. grow what was already a really strong uh, base. Yeah. So we've had a healthcare tech platform called M Digital Life for a while now, something started by Greg Matthews, probably, uh, you know, he's, he was in our, in our Austin office probably about gosh six years ago, seven years ago. We, we really we started off very simple. We, you know, uh, at the time, the, the, the kind of modus operandi for getting social media data from physicians or patients was to go into a social listening tool 
like a Sysmos or a Radian 6 at the time to date myself. We go and put a few keywords around, you know, oncology or specific cancers, for example, download that content, and then some poor analyst would have to go through and spend a day or two figuring out what posts are from patients, what are from physicians, what's just sort of made, what's just come from the news, what sort of stock chatter, you know, what's spam or bot generated stuff. And it just took a long time. So like this is stupid. Why don't we just go start with physicians or start with patients and just look at what they're saying? Um, we started with physicians just mapping um, social properties to MPI numbers to create this sort of taxonomy of physicians that we just look at all their tweets, for example, or at the time, I mean, there was, it was easy to access Facebook to kind of look at their Facebook, the public Facebook content. You know, I think that we were able to get some really good insights from that. And we still today use a lot of that sort of social data to understand the media ecosystems for, for um, specific uh, patient communities and, and for, uh, you know, professional communities in healthcare. But, um, you know, obviously a lot of physicians aren't going to Twitter to talk about how they feel about specific drugs um, or whether they think that, you know, the reimbursement, you know, whether or not that, you know, payers are covering the rent stuff. So, you know, you need to see them, you know, or you need to look at their behavior. So we've actually spent the last couple of years really enriching that database with offline data. We have a ton of bibliometric information for physicians now so we can do KOL mapping. Um, we've started, uh, you know, including scripts data, you know, and, and um, in, in some cases where we, we have a claims data so that we can get more of a 360 view of what's actually happening in the wild, as well as sort of what the media consumption habits of these, these physicians look like. So, I mean, as you can imagine, I think we're, we, can, we can be a lot more specific in our recommendations about what physicians to work with or what patients are really, you know, how they're really behaving, you know, in, in, you know, in, in the real world, not just what they're talking about in social. It's, um, yeah, it, it, I think it's really evolved. And, and you know, I, I think, um, you know, when you put, when you give a type of data and the types of analytical techniques that we've developed over time with our data scientists, and when you put that in the hands of people that really understand the space, like with Kevin's team, um, you know, I, I think uh, we're pretty unparalleled, certainly in the social and digital side about what we can deliver in terms of insights for our healthcare clients. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that. And it's one of those things that, um, you know, I know that obviously a lot of companies, a lot of agencies are building analytics capabilities. And I'd like to think we have probably a good four or five year head start in terms of the robustness. So one of the things that I would love to ask, you know, as a follow up there is, is that we do have a lot of uh, forces, some, you know, uh, making it more restrictive in GDPR, um, this data privacy rule that just got passed and or I guess got passed a couple of years ago, but is now being enforced in the UK and is sort of making its way into other countries. And uh, we're starting to see some states versions of it in the United States. But then we also have things like machine learning and artificial intelligence and, you know, faster cloud, things like that. So maybe spend a little, you know, 90 seconds talking about so how, how some of these new uh, trends or not so new trends are impacting the things you can and can't do in the analytics and research space. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a great question. I, I think that for the most part, GDPR isn't going to happen, and all the legislation that's coming down the line in the U.S. Um, in a couple of years, I don't think it's going to impact most traditional market research because those panels explicitly opt in to, the, to you know being researched, you know, when when they when they join the panel or when they when they participate in an interview or or in a survey. Uh, I think the um, more of um, there's going to be you know, you can already see there's a, there's a there's more of an impact on the digital and social side. So, you know, um, a lot of companies like Google have already started anonymizing or not providing kind of you know unique IDs to advertisers. Uh, so, it, you know, I can see a world where we get back into statistical modeling and we're not able to make direct connections between 
uh, a specific person who clicks on an ad and, you know, connecting that to a CRM, for example, that's going to become increasingly difficult or just impossible, potentially. Um, on the social side, um, it's funny, it actually seems like nobody's taking GDPR that seriously on the social side. All the social media vendors continue to store personal information. I I'm not sure what's going to happen there, but I know, you know, certainly W2L, we're taking it pretty seriously. I mean, we're assuming, you know, we, we, we're just going to take the most conservative stance and assume that everybody that we analyze is a citizen of the EU, which we know they're not, but you know, we're just going to assume that they are, and we just anonymize everything that we store. So because we only, in social, only analyze public data, you know, we have a legal right to analyze that data for public, you know, public information for business purposes, but we can't store it. So what we've done is we've just started anonymizing every single piece of content that we analyze. So that, that means encrypting all of the, the handles that we store, for example, um, but also even when we're looking at images, which isn't that often, but, you know, for some of our more consumer-facing brands, we might look at pictures online, and before analysts even analyze those, you know, we're using Amazon for recognition to identify the faces, and then we black them out. So there's nothing conceivably identifiable in those. So we're taking a really conservative approach to it. I'm not seeing that across the board. I mean, we might be, I don't know. I don't want to say that we're being unnecessarily conservative. I actually do, you know, we, we do want people to have privacy. I think that we don't really, honestly, from a research perspective, we don't care who specific individuals are. We really want to see information in aggregate. So um, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, we'll see over the next um, couple of years how that pans out. And then how about AI and, and ML? Um, obviously, that's something that does help you guys and, and does, I think, make things faster and, and probably allows us to get richer insights into things. And, and I don't see humans ever not helping this process, but I would say maybe helps humans do their jobs faster and better. Yes. Yeah. I, on the ML side, it's, it's interesting. I think that... Um, we we've actually found machine learning is is real. You're right. I think it's really good at helping out with really simple tasks. So I think we've found the most success at this point using machine learning to you know a really obvious example is just how do you actually identify specific audiences based on how they talk. So we've actually developed some really cool uh, machine learning models where we can just upload a bunch of text and pretty reliably infer whether or not the person writing it is a patient, a caregiver, a physician a journalist, et cetera. So the kind of stuff that we actually used to have analysts or even we would crowdsource, um, yeah, we're able to use machine learning at scale now. So we're able to, you know, kind of quickly analyze hundreds of thousands of conversations where before we might have to do a sample of a few hundred and, and kind of rely on those. Um, you know, there's, but, uh, you know, I think there's still a long way to go. I, you know, we, we've dabbled in using some kind of, you know, commercial machine learning and AI techniques to do predictive modeling. And, we generally find that a really good statistician is, you know, they, it might take them a week or two, but they're going to create a much more accurate predictive model than a lot of the AI and machine learning that we're seeing. So, you know, um, I'm sure the models will improve over time, but um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a fun time to be a researcher. You're able to analyze a lot more data, a lot more clean data faster now than you could even, you know, five, let alone 10 years ago. Yeah, and I've certainly seen, you know, from the early scrappy days what was possible to what we can do now, and it's been quite impressive and powerful. I do want to, yeah. one, be respectful of your time, and two, I do want to, uh, you know, kind of come to a conclusion. This is the, the portion of the show where I do like to shift gears and find out a little bit more about you yeah. personally, uh, and the three questions I usually ask are, you know, tell us something about yourself that we don't know, uh, we touch on any books that you've read and then the fun, you know, or fun for me anyway, <laughs> deserted island question. So why don't we start with that? I, I may know what the uh, thing that people don't know about you is, but there are probably others that don't. But uh, I will let you um, 
you know, surprise us with what that answer is. Oh my gosh. Well, I, you know, for people that know me, um, I'm trying to think what's, you know, I'll, I'll go back to the beginning when I was talking about the fishing town that I grew up in. I actually, I never, um, I, uh, when I was 15, um, I took some, I took some time off of school and I worked on a crab boat, um, in, uh, out of, uh, Washington state fishing at a Westport, which was dangerously close to Aberdeen where Nirvana's from. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I have some, uh, I think those people that meet me are often surprised. I think they have a hard time imagining me on the back of a crab boat, but, um, but you know, those are my roots. <laughs> so I didn't kind of know a, that. So, kind of yeah, no, I love that factoid. I did not know that. I thought we were going to talk about you being on the album cover. So we'll save that for a different episode. Um, yeah. how about books? Uh, I know that, uh, you are a very, um, book smart guy. I don't know how much time or whether you have time. You also have a young family, um, but you know, are there anything you've read over the last couple of years that you'd like to share? Oh man. Yeah, I, um, sure. I mean, I, I read, I'm a pretty avid reader. Um, trying to think of like what I've read recently that, that I think would be a broad interest for this group. So actually, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about a book. So there's a book that I just reread because, um, so I'm a huge Gary Steingart fan. Um, he's kind of this Gen Xer. He grew up in Russia. He's a, um, English professor at, um, or I'm sorry, maybe he's like a creative writing professor at Columbia, but um, he has a new book coming out, I think on September 4th about hedge funds um, called, uh, um, God, was it called? Late Success. Anyway, I'm excited to read it, but I went back and read his last novel, um, Super Sad True Love Story, which came out, I think in 2010. And uh, it's a dystopian novel where basically Americans only have one of three jobs, retail, finance, and uh, uh, retail, finance, and marketing. And, um, Social media uh, at the time it seemed silly, but everybody wears this sort of like device. It's this device that reveals your credit store score and how attractive you are, and all these sort of basically what your blood pressure is. I think and things like that to everybody around you, so they can kind of size you up immediately. Um, and and it obviously was written as, as satire, but um, it's amazing how many of the things that he talks about uh, in that book actually came true. So it's been fun to go back and reread it. It's actually it's it's almost. He almost seems kind of like a Nostradamus um, in a way, but like a really uh, goofy Nostradamus. So I, I, if anybody is interested in reading um, really funny dystopian novels about social media, um, pick up Super Sad True Love Story. It's a, it's a, it's a good one. There's, there's a combo you don't hear often is funny and dystopian in, in the same phrase. So um, but well, it does yeah. sound intriguing. Yeah. Apparently they are. So I will have to look into that one. So my last question, and, and I am particularly fascinated with this one, I'm guessing it'll be probably a little esoteric because you do have some uh, very cool and distinct tastes in music, but I like to ask everyone, you know, imagine you're stranded on a deserted Island. Uh, you have one album that you can take with you. Don't worry about the technology and how that works. Which album would you pick and why? Yeah. So I know you're telling me not to worry about the technology, but it would definitely, so here's the thing. I have a plan. I'm going to smuggle in a record player and, you know, decent um, stereo system. And I would bring, you know, like an actual record, like an actual vinyl record. I would probably bring, um, I would probably bring Abbey Road, because um, for whatever reason, the second half of Abbey Road in particular, I never get tired of listening to it. I don't think it's any less cool today than it was when it came out, like in what, like 1970 uh, or maybe 71. Yeah. Um, it's just a timeless album. I, for me, it's the pinnacle of of sort of contemporary. It's the pinnacle of 20. It's actually probably just rock and roll music. Period. It's, I don't think that there's anything of that. I mean, you know, I think it's a pinnacle of basically music probably in this millennium, you know, or, or in the, you know, so love that album. Never get tired of listening to it. But here's the thing, though. 
I'm a sneaky guy, so I would totally take that album, but I would put in a bunch of other records in the in the jacket. So I would also bring so I would also bring probably the white album in there too. Actually, I probably would smoke on the white albums with a double disc, so I could actually get my records in there. Oh man, I would definitely bring um, London Calling. That's another album that I just I never get tired of listening to. I don't know. I mean, I would say combination of the Beatles, the Clash. Um, I would probably sneak in um, some Wu Tang. Um, probably 36 Chambers. That's strangely enough, you know, 20 years later, more than that. I I, I still listen to that album. Sad but true. Right. Yeah. I like your thinking. Anyway, and I think yeah. that's that's yeah, the, yeah. the key is is that uh you know, that's your, your analytical side working and uh I couldn't disagree. I love I, I've never been as big a clash I uh, fan. I respect the hell out of that album, love the Beatles, yeah. um, appreciate Wu Tang. Uh but anyway, this has been a lot of fun and I know you you're headed to the airport, so I probably need to let you go either way. But uh this is Aaron Stroud, CMO of W two O the host of the What to Know podcast show. And today we've had the pleasure of speaking to our chief analytics officer, Seth Duncan. Seth, thank you so much for spending time with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.